Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. Today, I'm super excited to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Kirsten Butso, former Pragmatic instructor, Pragmatic uh, product manager, product marketing, just a great all-around uh, product person, a great instructor, a great leader, and a great friend. Hi, Kirsten. Hey, Rebecca. Super excited to be spending some time with you today, as always. Great opportunity. Thank you for uh, having me. Absolutely. All right. So you left the end of last year, about October. And since you left Pragmatic Institute, we actually had, as you know, some big news, right? We purchased the data incubator and brought on data science training as part of our curriculum. And I thought it would be a super interesting conversation to get your perspective on that as someone who's been both on the inside and the outside and someone who has worked so much at sort of that intersection of product and data about the acquisition and, and where you see the opportunities there. Well, first of all, I was a little jealous to see it from afar. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I should take it personally or not, but you waited till I was gone. Um, but I thought it was really exciting to see and read. And the reason for me that it was so exciting to, uh, to see and read is, you know, I don't have to tell you, but the, the fundamental tenet of being an excellent uh, marketer, being an excellent pragmatic marketer really is based on knowing and understanding your customers understanding the market and there's no way to do that without really understanding data and how data works um and so i just thought it was such a a, a cool acquisition that you did i really enjoyed seeing that uh, from afar i'm very excited to see where you guys take that as an organization i thought it was a very wise wise decision on your part well i you know it was one of those things when we first started talking about and doing it too i was so excited because we always talk about ourselves being a market-driven company and to me, really, it's about being a market and data-driven company. And because we talk so much about needing to get the context in terms of like those Nahito visits and really getting to understand people, but you also don't want to get kind of sucked into the story of one. And so you need to balance that with, you know, a larger look at the data and taking those kind of insights and providing them in a more quantifiable way. Um, and I think that's sometimes a challenge that people have to get both those parts together. I would love for you to share, if you can, some of the stories of where you've done that in your career or the companies you've worked with have done either as an instructor or there um, and how they've kind of managed that intersection. You know, um, first of all, I think you're spot on. And I always say that data without a story is just an interesting read. And so you've got to have that quantifiable data that provides the foundation that really enables you or invokes your ability as an organization to tell that story of who you are and why you're relevant in the marketplace. What do you bring to the marketplace that somebody else doesn't have? And you can conjure that up in your head all day long, but without actual data that's rooted in the people who know and use your products or are considering knowing and using your products, it's just make-believe. And so when you marry those two things together, that's really the litmus test for most organizations. Um, so to your question more specifically about examples, one of the, the challenges that I have seen organizations face in my 25 plus years career of, of being in, in, in product leadership roles is that ability to prioritize 
which features they're going to build into their product. And it's, it's something that I think is a super curious point because organizations have struggled for that my, with that my entire career and they still struggle with it today. And I think the number one reason that they struggle with it is they bypass leveraging or acquiring and validating data to really start to inform that story that they're going to tell to the marketplace. And so as a consequence, it's very, very easy to have that, that um, N equals one, that, that story of one knee-jerk reaction to the loudest voice, the highest rank, the most angry customer, the happiest customer, the biggest customer, the most influential customer at any given moment in time. But it, it doesn't set you up for long-term success. Um, so I think it's really critical. I think probably one of the best examples that I've used in my career is actually from a keynote speech uh, that I did uh, for Pragmatic Marketing uh, last year at the industry event run by the Product Collective in Cleveland. And I talked about um, when I was an executive uh, with Pearson uh, Education. So Pearson's probably, well, at the time it was the largest education company in the world, multi-billion dollar multinational company. And I was leading a, uh, a digital portfolio and we didn't really realize that we weren't tuned into our market because we were listening to our salespeople, we were listening to a handful of customers, we were listening to a couple of calls coming in to our, our help desk telling us what to do for our product until we had a catastrophic release of our product and we basically brought our system to our knees, to its knees and we really had a, 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 a bad chain of events happen, lots of unhappy customers. And we were really ultimately very, very grateful for why that event happened because it forced us to look at ourselves and realize that at the crux of our problems was the fact that we weren't actually using real data to make decisions. We didn't know who our customers were. We didn't know what categories of personas we had that we were trying to please. And as a consequence, how could we possibly know the right features to put in our products? So we begin that journey of really starting to try to unpack who we were serving as a company, as a business. Um, and that really started that, that journey for us. I'll pause and see if you have any questions before I kind of continue the story. No, I mean, I, I think that's such a great example of the use of data and, and to understand your market so you can dig deeper, right? Even knowing which personas to start at. And yeah, I, and, and, and what was happening, Rebecca, was there were a lot of personas. I mean, you yeah. think about, right? So you think about a school district, you got the people in the lunchroom, you've got administrators, you've got teachers, you've got students, you've got parents, and you know, you've got the, the coaches of the sports teams. I mean, there are a lot of players that run a school district and we were inadvertently trying to please everybody. And we were pleasing nobody. And we didn't know it until we had a major failure on our hands. And so when we retrenched and got back down to data and we started looking at, okay, who are all the constituents that we work with? And what quantifiable populations are we dealing with? In other words, what segments are we dealing with? And who should we be really focusing on trying to please? It was really only four segments or four groups that we should have as our target market. We, we had, we ended up with, um, uh, administrators, parents, teachers, and students, and everybody else, we, we just said, you know what, they're going to not fall by the wayside, 
but they're not really at the crux of the epicenter of why we're doing what we're doing. And so it changed the entire nature of our conversation when we really distilled it down. So your, your point about personas and, and understanding who they are and having too many of them, it couldn't have been closer to the truth for what we were experiencing. And I love too that you can layer on top of that sort of micro segmentation from a messaging perspective, right? So you can understand four personas really well, and but then I can I can have messaging that speaks to you know seven subsets in there based on other data that I have. And I just think that's another really great tool of data in order to to personify or personalize the story more for for our market. Well, so I love your point and I'll tell you why. Um, you're hitting the nail on the head because prior to that, the way we had viewed segmentation is there was an industry group that produced uh, numbers in the United States, number of school districts in the United States. And in the United States, there's like a, a pyramid of student population. So there's these mega districts, right? So you've got these massive districts like Chicago Public Schools, Houston Public Schools, LA Unified School District that have half a million, a million students, right? And they're at the top of the pyramid. And then you go all the way down and you have districts that have 500 to 1,000 students in those districts. We were viewing our segmentation by districts based on their student counts. Well, what does that possibly tell you about how you should create functionality in your product? Whether or not a, a district had 1,000 students or 500,000 students, didn't really tell you anything about the people who were buying and using those products. It wasn't until we distilled it down to those four key personas that put a face on those numbers that it really was like the curtains got opened up and we realized, wait a second, student counts aren't who's logging onto our system and use it. It's actually parents, teachers, students, administrators. And when that homepage comes up, it better do something that's gonna be worthwhile for them. And we better be able to recognize who they are when they arrive at our landing page, because I don't want to be presenting administrative uh, information to a parent because they don't care and we're going to lose them. Um, and so you're, you, you, just, you just couldn't be more right. It was a really great lesson on how to, how to do everything wrong, have a major failure so you can actually figure out how to start to do everything right. It wasn't fun at the time, I'm, I'm not going to lie. But I do think it sounds like to, to get yourself out of that hole, you really did um, it wasn't just data and it wasn't just market evidence. It was that combination of the two that made it so powerful. Absolutely. You've got to have the data to inform the story, and then you have to leverage the story to inform the way you represent yourself to the marketplace. So did the rest of the organization just like, how did you get them on board with what you were finding and showing? Or was it obvious because you had the data or, or was there or, tricks to how you presented that to bring them uh, well, I think the main trick was that we had this catastrophic situation and it ended up being a bit of a crisis, all hands on deck. And that made everybody stand up very quickly. Uh, and the end result of that uh, ended up being probably one of the proudest mo moments of my career because um, it was unpleasant. But what we really focused on as an executive team at the time was getting down to a systemic understanding of where we went wrong across throughout the organization versus trying to find one place to, to, to figure out where things had gone awry. And when we did that and we came together, people got on board very, very quickly. It became very, very obvious what we needed to do. So 
unfortunately, I didn't have to do a lot of heavy lifting to convince the organization that this was the way we needed to head and, and where those uh, failures were because the failure was so significant, it was so systemic, we knew we had to do something and we had to do something uh, across the entire organization. So, because I'm hesitant to advise people to have a catastrophic event, ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what is another good way of sort of jump-starting this and getting, getting both the process going and the people on board? Um, that's a great question, too. And, um, yeah, you're right. I probably would advise against catastrophic events as being the catalyst for getting the organization on board if, if you can avoid it. Um, I think, you know, it's very common, Rebecca, for an organization to what made them great isn't what keeps them great. So it's very, very common that you will have an organization that creates something that solves a real problem in the marketplace. And as a consequence, success ensues. And very often a startup, for example, doesn't have the luxury of doing a lot of data analysis, you know, hiring big companies to conduct surveys to validate patterns or trends you see in the marketplace. Yet, as they grow and that success ensues, they assume their market is either going to stay static or that they will continue to be the sole arbiter of understanding market data to make those decisions. And if you think about that, it's actually a pretty silly and risky proposition because the market evolves. And so I think one of the biggest things that you can impress upon an organization is the world is not static. And so if you're going to really be a successful entity that exists in perpetuity, it's incumbent upon you as an organization to constantly have your fingers on the pulse of the market, constantly be doing market sensing activities, constantly be gathering and validating data. Because if you don't, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to get bypassed. And that is a very, very scary proposition to most organizations. And so I think really astute organizations recognize that and they want to embrace that and they've got to start to plan for it and embed it in the, in the, in the 2.0 phase, the 3.0 phase, the 4.0 phase of their organizations. Otherwise, they're going to be those organizations that are really successful at 1.0, but then you see them falter at 2 and 3.0 because they pull back or they stop those market sensing activities that put them in the position to have a really successful product out of the chute in the first place. And so I think if you can paint that picture for an organization that this is a lifestyle, this is a way of living, this isn't a one and done sort of thing. This is something we have to think about and embed in everything we do. It's easier to get an organization on board to make those changes. So I absolutely love that. What made them great doesn't keep them great. And I wonder when it comes to sort of the intersection of data with good product management and product marketing, if that's also true on the individual level, right? So the companies need to embrace that, but what does a product professional need to embrace in this changing times? Well, the number one reason a product professional wants to embrace it is because it's the only way to create sanity in your role. Because if you don't embrace this behavior, you don't embrace this practice, and you don't help the organization see the merit of this practice, get ready 
put on your seatbelt because every day when you go into work, you are going to be beholden to whatever list of screaming requests are sitting on your desk for the day. And they may or may not be the right things. It may just be the loudest customer or the biggest deal that you're trying to close. And if you don't have data, you can't explain to somebody why chasing that one really big deal is gonna cost the company 75% of its revenues. So it doesn't make sense. And so if you um, don't embrace and embed this behavior and this practice in your job, it's not sustainable and you will be burned out faster than you can imagine because you're just going to be knee jerked back and forth by whatever big request you happen to get that day and you won't have any way to clearly articulate and um, explain to the organization why your energies aren't well served on a really loud individual thing that happens to be you know present versus the other things that aren't screaming but drive 30, 40, 50% of the company's revenues. And so as a product manager, quite honestly, the number one reason why you wanna be data-driven is, it's literally the only way you can create sanity for you in your role. Otherwise you're gonna get jerked around and you're gonna get burned out very, very quickly. It might be just because I know you personally, Kirsten, but I also heard in that answer is your absolute love for spreadsheets <laughs> and order. <laughs> that from you but I know it that you were just like your eyes would get big and be like and then there will be spreadsheets <laughs> okay allegedly I'll just say allegedly all right I don't think there's video so what is going to arm product management product marketing professionals the best to take advantage of sort of the data that's out there to help them make better decisions and have clearer priorities I think the number one thing is they have to learn. For, so first of all, I want to I want to backtrack a little bit to my previous answer because I don't want it to just be selfish. Product managers should get sanity. It's also, by the way, good for the business, right? It's the right decision for the business because ultimately the job of the product leader is to drive the demand curve for your products to the right. It's to make sure that there is demand in the marketplace for your product. And the only way to really truly have demand for market demand for your product in the marketplace is to create product that when people see it, it so obviously meets a need for them that they've got to have it. And so if you're randomly creating stuff without data, the likelihood of that occurrence of events is very, very low. So it's, it's good for self-preservation, but it's also the right decision for the business. And so I think um, when, you, when you think about reaching out across the organization, um, yes, you want to be tuned in to all the different parts of the business but you don't want each individual part of the business to be making the decisions for what your customers need and want from you. And so it's really a shift that the entire organization has to make. It's a mind shift that the organization has to make from being a, we know what the customer wants to we need to go listen to and validate what the customer wants. Because very often what what they want isn't what they say they want or they won't show that to you directly and you won't know that unless you do that research to validate what it is you're trying to do to please the market. And if you, here's the bottom line, honest to gosh, if you don't do these things, your shelf life as an organization is limited. You will not have in perpetuity, in perpetuity success as a company. It's just a fact. You can't guess your way to success. 
And um, if you just refuse to become a data-driven organization that leverages data to create a foundation that informs the story, that informs the things that you're gonna put into the marketplace, you're making stuff up, you're guessing. And you might get lucky one or two times, but you're not gonna get lucky forever. And so that's why it's so critical that product leaders really set that tone for the organization. And again, in the same parallel, I think in these days and days, if you don't embrace being a data or a market and data-driven product manager, you're going to get left behind. Because when you come to the table with some really strong market visits, but you don't have the data behind it, when you can't have that same conversation, when there's so much data in your organization, either again, you're going to be guessed or you're just going to be drowned out by other people. So I think it's, it's sort of imperative for us to figure out where we can leverage the data, make sure that we've got good eyes on where the data is and what stories it's telling us. 100%. And you, you bring up such a great point, Rebecca, about balance, right? Because you can, you can, it, you can create imbalance on both sides of that mm -hmm. equation, right? You can get so mired in numbers and analysis paralysis that it never informs anything that you do. And you can get so mired in fun little anecdotal information that's not validated with any real data that you lose track of who you are as a company. And so it really is about creating that balance. Uh, that's why I was really excited to see about uh, TDI becoming part of the Pragmatic Institute because, uh, because of that integration that's required and that balancing ethics that's required. It's really both sides of the coin. And that's a super great point. I think uh, people sometimes do overcorrect the other way, right? And they go, oh, I don't, I, in fact, I had someone the other day I was talking to, was talking about market visits and they're like, well, what is that? And I explained it and they're like, oh, I, I have surveys that tell me that. And I was like, oh, I did not explain that well then. <laughs> uh, but it is, it really is that balancing act. And I think that would be a great uh, topic maybe for a different podcast some days is how do we keep that balance and how do we know when we, you know, uh, you could go way too deep on any one of those and also not deep enough on both sides of market and data and striking that balance and then presenting that story uh, is always a, a good part too. 100%. I would say the 80-20 rule, right? Try to get 80, you know, try to get 80% of the way there and then let 20% be, you know, what it's going to be. That sounded a lot like wing it. And again, knowing you, Kirsten. <laughs> It's not, I'm not saying wing it. I'm saying don't, don't, don't delve into analysis paralysis. Ah, that makes sense. Right? Yes, find it, sure. find, the, find the good enough curve, find the good enough curve. And you know, I'm part of it's because I'm not in accounting and I'm in, in marketing and product marketing that, that that's what I'm looking for is trends in data as well. Right. The, whether it's, so if it's 98% accurate, that's enough. Now, again, if you're a doctor, please be more accurate than that. If you're in finance and accounting, I understand that those metrics may not be enough, but for most of us, right, if we've got directional, if we've got a big enough sample size, we don't, we, we're just wasting time and energy going, trying to get that last 20% to your point. 100%. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. So we talked a ton of different things today. Uh, if you could get our listeners to do one thing differently today, uh, based on what we talked about, that they would do differently tomorrow at the office, what would that be? I would plead with them to please resist the urge to being reactive 
to loud individual requests that aren't rooted in quantifiable validated data. That's that would be my my request. That's a great idea, right? As a you know, we talk about how do you say no without being fired when all these things and if one of those just always follow up questions is that's great. Can we take a look at the data? Right. It doesn't have to be um, caustic like right. What do you have data to prove that but great. Let's dig into the data and see where it shows that I think is a great way of getting even those people to start realizing that like this is a this is a noisy problem, not a real problem. Right. Or, or, you know what, if it's a noisy problem, that is a real problem. I want to know that too, but I don't get to find that out unless I actually do the research. Absolutely. All right, Kirsten, it was awesome to have you back on today. Thank you. Super fun. All right. So that does it for today's episode. Thank you everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 